Hi, this is Women Who Travel, a new podcast from Condé Nast Traveller that digs deep into the realities of travelling as a woman today and celebrates why we'll never stay home. I'm Lale Arakoku. With me today is my co-host Meredith Carey. Hello. And for our third episode, we're joined by Ivy Mix, the owner of Leander, a Latin cocktail bar and restaurant in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn, and co-founder of Speed Rack, an international all-female bartending competition and breast cancer charity. We also have Devra First with us, a food writer, editor, and cooking teacher based in Brooklyn, and Anna McGorman, the executive pastry chef of Blue Suit in Manhattan. Hello. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Hi. I think I just got hungry and really thirsty just like listening to everyone's <laughs> intros. Well, it's been a, a wild week for the food and beverage industry, but we'll get to that later. Um, yeah. You know, I think you all three of you um, work in such like male dominated industries and I think our listeners would be really interested to hear about how you broke into it in the first place um, and kind of what that journey's been like for the three of you. Um, Anna, maybe you want to start? Sure. Uh, (laughs) Basically, I have a weird career path because I decided when I was 14 that I was going to go to culinary school and I watched a CNN brief as you're one to do at 14 <laughs> and it was a woman we would have gotten along when we were 14 <laughs> yeah. um, and basically she was at the Culinary Institute of America and it started it was like I'm at the CIA but not the one you think oh I'm at the Culinary Institute of America <laughs> and it had never occurred to me that I could be a chef and from then on I was like yep that's it I'm going in all in like I'm going to be a chef and I walked into my parents' bedroom and I was like, I'm gonna go to the CIA. And of course my dad rolled over and was like, she wants to be a spy, <laughs> like what's happening? Um, but my mom basically was a big help and advocate, but she was like, this is tough. This is not a place that's very easy, particularly as like a young woman. So if you wanna do it, I'll help you, but you're gonna have to do the work for yourself. So I started, um, I watched, the news and found the like 10 best restaurants in Philadelphia which is where I'm from and I wrote 10 letters that said can I come work for you and I like had a resume with my cat sitting experience (laughs) my extensive (laughs) plant watering Um, and I ended up getting an internship at a steakhouse um, and then a job at a restaurant called Fork so I was there for three and a half years went to school and then I moved to New York and I started working for Danielle Baloud so it was it was a a lot of work in the beginning and it was certainly weird to be in a kitchen the steakhouse was weird <laughs> it was weird it was a guy like smoking cigarettes in the kitchen berating me most of the time and i was 14 like i don't know how to cook steak like what do you want with that chives 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 put it out like i have no idea never got a steak sent back which i feel proud about but it was it was tough and um finding kind of a path for myself, listening to my inside person being like, maybe you're a little too anal retentive. So <laughs> I switched from savory to pastry and I haven't looked back since. And Ivy? Um, yeah, so actually as a side note, it's funny where I get all of my inspiration from cocktails is, are actually from uh, pastry books. Cause I think that y- your comment about switching from savory to pastry in cocktails we kind of work with similar flavor profiles so that's awesome amazing (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah i similarly um when i first got into the cocktail bartending thing i 
had already been bartending for four years, but I was bartending in Latin America. It's where I, I lived part-time when I was in college in Guatemala and also um, Bennington, Vermont. <laughs> <laughs> Six to one half dozen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Same <Samesies>. Whatever. <laughs> um, but I started bartending in Guatemala, but it was a beer in a shop place. And, you know, I fell in love with the social aspects of bartending. And this was like pre-Facebook and remember Friendster? Friendster was a thing. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so, but no one had traveled with their cell phones. It was, if you wanted to find your friends, you had to go to the bar. Um, so, um, <clears throat> started bartending down there, and then I moved to New York in 2000, end of 2008, 2009. Um, obviously, the economy had just collapsed. Um, I thought I was going to be in the art world. I got a job at, at Gagosian Gallery, and it was the worst job I've ever had ever in my entire <laughs> life. Um, and then I still had to start working to make money, so I fell back on the hospitality industry because that's what I knew. Um, and then I got a, a job at the now defunct Maya Well um, in the East Village as a cocktail waitress because I knew a lot about tequila and mezcal from my times traveling throughout Latin America and Mexico in particular. Uh, and I was like, oh my God, I want to be a, a bartender again. Look, these people are so creative. I can make money being creative. Unlike my job Gagosian, like I can actually do fun stuff. And this is so amazing. This is what I want to do. And the answer I kind of got was, well, no, you're going to be a cocktail waitress. And I was like, but... Uh, four years bartending experience, <laughs> you know, like what's the difference? You know, I think I can do this. And, um, this was kind of back in the day where cocktail bar was synonymous with speakeasy and speakeasy was synonymous with mixologist, which was, you know, if you look up, if you like get a gift for mixology, it'll probably be some <laughs> dude with a mustache and like, you know, suspenders. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like, and there was, strategic lines. yeah. And there you know, wasn't really a place for a woman in that image of mixologist. Um, so when I was told, no, you can't be a bartender. I was kind of like, fuck that. I'm going to be the best bartender I can be. You do not tell me no. Um, I started working to do better. All that being said, at the time, I got lots of opportunities because there weren't that many women that people knew of doing it. So in some ways, it benefited my career, and in some ways, it was a detriment. But in the, it was only a detriment in that I was told no, and then I was like, go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> I will not. Yeah. Usually no is a very encouraging word. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> How about you, Deborah? Um you know, food writing is a little bit different because as opposed to the restaurant world um, or the bar scene, it is um, there are a lot more women, um, which I've always been really grateful for. Um, for me, a lot of it was sort of right place, right time. I also grew up in Philadelphia, walking distance from Fork. Respect. <laughs> uh, and really thought I wanted to be a chef and then somehow ended up graduating from university thinking I wanted to be a professor and spent a year living abroad and in the Middle East and worked in a kitchen and then worked for a magazine. And when I got back to the States, I was at a newspaper as a really, really junior level staffer. Um, and they wanted to start a food blog and didn't have anybody else on staff who had ever really worked in a kitchen. So they were like, we're going to let you run with this. And um, it sort of it went from there. Awesome. And so it's no secret that the hospitality industry has like zero time off. Like, <laughs> you don't unsocial, say. unsocial hours. <laughs> also, full disclosure: Anna and I go way back, <laughs> and I never see her apart from at like one a.m. Yes, 
at a random bar. (laughs) Saturday nights, because I'm usually off only on Sundays, between 1A and 3.30A. And then we stroll home from the bar. (laughs) It's lovely. (laughs) The foundations of a great friendship. But, you know, um, in our Women Who Travel Facebook group, I think a question that gets asked a lot in there is how people make time for travel and how people make time to see the world and get inspiration um, from other countries, um, places that are different from where you live. Um, I'd be like really interested to hear about how the three of you make time for that because it sounds like your career paths were often shaped by the countries you went to and the people that you met. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'll definitely, I mean, the whole reason why I became a bartender was because I could travel. That was the reason um, it's a trade. I knew that I could go anywhere in the world and probably get a job, you know, beer, 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 like pointing, pour (laughs) a draft, open a bottle, you know, it's okay. I can probably do it. Um, And I've been lucky enough that now at the point I am in my career, I get to travel a lot for work. So like I went to Athens in September, which was amazing. Did you go to Clumsy's? I bartended there. It was the best. So anyone going to Athens soon, just go to Clumsy's. Yeah, oh, the best. Everyone just gasped. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was great. Want to specify Greece, not Georgia? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Yes. (laughs) very helpful. Um, But yeah, it was really fantastic. And I find myself in all these positions where I do get to travel for work. And a lot of it, tends to be in Latin America, where I spent so much, so much time living. Leyenda is a Latin-inspired bar. Um, I'm relatively fluent in Spanish, so I get lots of opportunities to go and do things for cocktails down in that part of the world, because I can actually communicate with people. Um, I'm going to Chile in the beginning of January. It's just, I mean, it's, it's awesome. I don't think I'd be able to be in a career with, that didn't allow me those possibilities. And I also get to go to places that, you know, it's all R&D. I mean, Athens. I I'm not going to put like a Metoxa drink on my la- on my Landa menu. People will be like, "This is Greek. This is weird." But uh, when I go to all these other places, I get to experience all these different flavors, and no matter where I go, I get to see how the hospitality is different. Um, it's just awesome. Traveling is the best. You got to open your mind or make time for it at the very least. You know, just do it because if you don't, it's just a limited worldview. <laughs> and out of interest, why Latin America so much? When I was in college, uh, so Bennington had a fall term and a winter, winter term and a spring term. And the winter term was called field work term. We had to go work in your field. Um, as a freshman, I had no field. <laughs> and um, I grew up in Vermont as well. So I kind of asked my mom, I was like, I, I want to learn a foreign language and I'm sick of not being cultured. You know, like, let's get out of here. And the first name was like a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend, this guy in Guatemala. And I was like, okay. So I went, and then and when I went, I was like, oh, my God, the whole world isn't white. It's not just Vermont. You know, like there's so many other things going on. And, you know, the culture, the ancient cultures, the colonialized Catholic culture, all these things were just like, Phew. so, and then I learned how to speak the language, and I really love speaking the language. So I was just like, I just, you know, then I went to Argentina, and then I lived in Peru, and then I went to Bolivia, and then I went like all over Mexico and kind of went over, um, I don't know. I think sometimes you just fall in love with a culture and you love to fall in love with like, I call it like the terroir of their culture for lack of a better word. But I like, think I like the food down there. I like the drinks down there. Things are spicy. Things are great. Things are lively and vivacious. And that, it's like, it's great. The weather's nice. It's all, it's all the things. <laughs> it's all the things. I love it there. I mean, I, I, yeah, I'm like one of these days I'll be like the Latin American, American ambassador to <laughs> the Americas. <laughs> <laughs> 
And Anna, what about you? Um, I guess I just believe it's a combination of like extreme planning and extreme spontaneity because it's very well said. <laughs> <laughs> like this past year I've done, I usually go out to LA and visit my brother for fake family Christmas in January, which <laughs> is like always planned. Um, but I did two and a half weeks in Japan, which we planned months in advance. It was like, okay, I'm taking all of my vacation and I'm going now. I know when restaurant week is. I know when my, you know, my job needs me to be there. And this is the time that I can really go and like sink in somewhere. So I've done like a big trip, but then it's also been like, I got like two days. Where should I go? (laughs) And like, I've done a bunch of like, you know, I'll go to Philly for a day. I'll go to DC for a day. I'll go to Boston for a day. Um, And obviously I'm not trying to, you can't go to Japan for a day, but like, you know, anytime that you have an opportunity to get out there, if even for a few days, I just do it. And Mm -hmm. obviously that's like a place of privilege to like have funds to do that. Um, But I guess the only bonus of working six days a week every week is that you don't go out a lot. (laughs) There's a little scratch to burn sometimes. Um, But I really... I love traveling, so that's why I always make it a priority because I'm like, all right, I got two days. Where is weird that I can go to? Mm-hmm. And the idea of going somewhere and like flying to Chicago for dinner is both absolutely outlandishly ridiculous, but also like, Chicago's cool though. So, yeah. Also, like, something you would do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, also- even if it's like Wiener Circle, I'm just trying, I'm out here for the dogs. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but here's also part of the benefit is that if you work all the time, but you also know people within this industry, so you can yeah. be like, I'm going to go to Chicago for dinner. And hey, Ben, yeah. <laughs> you have a spot for your bar for one? Yeah. What's up? <laughs> no, and I, it's me. I think the other great thing about what you just said was that I think a lot of people, when they think about travel, especially from the US, because I think we forget about our own country a lot of the time, is mm. that like if you live in New York, like you're going to get an awesome experience eating and drinking in Boston. You're going to get an awesome experience eating and drinking in Philly. You're not going to have to wait as long if you go to Philly and it's going to be just as good food. Mm -hmm. Um, And so doing those weekend trips and like doing those like extra, like I'm going to go one day this week, I'm going to take the, you know, two hour, three hour train just for a meal. is like a totally acceptable thing to do if, if you can make it work. Yeah. And I mean, it's like, you always got to think about, I mean, I also take flights to Boston. <laughs> I don't know if that's truly unnecessary. I understand it affects my carbon footprint, so I so I feel bad about that sometimes. But it's like, if I'm going somewhere for, you know, 27 hours, the amount of t- time that I'm going to sp- I don't want to spend four hours on a bus. Mm-mm. So if I can get a weird JetBlue $69 flight, super discount, like, I'm just going to grab it and go and spend 45 minutes in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of our friends went to Charleston last weekend. It's an hour and a half. I could spend that on the train to Brooklyn at night. <laughs> oh, yeah. The idea that Easily. I would just like go somewhere and have a bunch of awesome meals. There's so much possibility within the U.S. that will open your eyes and new experiences that obviously it's going to be different than going internationally. But the idea that you can get somewhere really, really quickly is wonderful because there's so much that we have to offer mm-hmm. that people just like, kind of forget about because every time they're planning a trip they're like I'm going out Out. (laughs) well and as a you know as an outsider at this table (laughs) um you know I think that's so true and one of the things that's the most striking to me is how I can be in New York and then be in Nashville and I'm still in the same country and it 
the food is so different yeah. the vibe is so different like the culture can be so different I just think that like there's such a wealth of possibility of things to see here and I think at Traveller we've been like this year has really been a mantra of like seeing more of the US, the US. For, sure. for sure yeah I think a lot of Americans lose sight of that. I mean, the people I know who have traveled the most around the United States are actually my friends who were not born here. Um, yeah. It's really important to remember, yeah, you can even just going to Philly for a weekend, going to Nashville, as you said, it's like it really does change every city that you switch to. And you can also get on a plane for as long as it would take you to get to London. You could go to the West Coast and um, it would still be a pretty different experience than home. Totally. And so, Deborah, you um, mentioned that you did some traveling um, in the Middle East um, way back when. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about that? Um, I lived in Israel right after I graduated from college um, and sort of, uh, you know, that balance of somewhere between traveling and actually living. Like I, I did have an apartment at one point, um, but I was also sort of using it as a base. I spent a bunch of time um, in Turkey and Egypt and Jordan um, and really love being in the Middle East. And that was sort of my first real introduction to to traveling in a place that felt markedly different than home. Um, before that, I'd only really spent time in Western Europe, um, which felt, you know, I grew up in a very sort of, my dad's always been a Francophile, sort of like a French-influenced <laughs> house. And um, so being in Western Europe didn't feel very different, but being in the Middle East felt very different. And the idea of hospitality was really different. Um, it's actually really formative in terms of how I think about hospitality now and also in terms of how I explore food. Um, it's become sort of an area of interest that I always return to. I mean, I try to go back every year. And how exactly does that hospitality differ? Hospitality in the Middle East is, from my experience, like the the warmest and most generous hospitality I've I've ever encountered. Um, there are certain parts of the Middle East where it would actually be considered taboo to ask somebody why they've knocked on your door um, before, like before offering them tea. Um, so, and even if people don't always stick to that exact practice, it's still very much the sentiment is that. You are always welcome. Um, and I mean, I, I'm not exaggerating when I tell you I've met people on a bus and in, been invited to people's homes. Um, <laughs> that is not a, a rare occurrence. Yeah, not um, happening on, on SEPTA. That's not really. <laughs> yeah, not happening in Philly. And if it does, I mean, I would be really cautious. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that sense of hospitality, I think, is really important. And also the, the amount of the way that food and drink sort of weaves in and out of time and just the time spent with people can just be a couple of hours sitting around having tea and um, or coffee and having fruit and um, that you can that you can pass an afternoon that way. And that's a totally lovely and acceptable way to pass an afternoon. That's so interesting because I feel like with my family, um, especially on my dad's side, like we have a habit of turning a lunch into a sort of four or five hour affair where you leave the restaurant and the sun has set and it's like time for dinner. Can I, can I join your family <laughs> perhaps? There's a lot of wine involved. Um, and so often with British friends of mine and American friends of mine, you get to the end of the meal and it's like, all right, let's get the check. Like, where are we going? Like, what are we doing now? And it's like, it's really nice to just sit and like enjoy and yeah. 
being in that meal and being in that moment and lingering. Also, Turkish people just feed you the entire time. <laughs> yeah, you're never done lunch. <laughs> no, no. They, and, and people get mad if you, when you don't want to take the, like, third type of, like, <laughs> random, like, pastry that someone's made. Um, yeah, you eat until you're sick there. It's great. Since you guys have so much experience kind of, like, serving others or being served in your jobs, has that changed? Has, like, the level you expect from restaurants and bars and hospitality, has that changed the way you guys travel and, like, the level at which you travel? Or would you feel like you just bring that to the table? I mean, I think it depends, really. I mean, sometimes I go places and, I mean, I guess it depends what you think of as level of hospitality. Like, when I go, when I travel, I go to, like, cheap, cheap taco trucks, anywhere to, like, you know, Michelin-starred whatever. Um, I think no matter what kind of hospitality, it's something in mind I always want. Like, if I'm going to go to some dive bar, I want some jerk old man who's going to, like, yell at me for <laughs> ordering a glass of wine or something, you know? <laughs> like, that's what I'm in for. Um but I think there is a certain aspect of being in this industry where, like, you can't, it's very hard to turn it off, which yeah. is like, ah, oh, damn it. Like, why do you serve me wine in a warm glass? Now <laughs> I can't stop thinking about that. <laughs> damn it. <laughs> Everything else is great, but that is bad. Um, but, yeah, I think for the most part, I just try to let it go and just try to experience it for what it is. Because if you don't do that, I mean, if you just focus on that warm glass, it will just, everything crumbles. <laughs> you know? And it can be very frustrating. Yeah, I mean, I, whenever I go anywhere, it's, I feel like, a, a real combination of, like, extreme highbrow and extreme lowbrow. <laughs> yeah. And, like, that's where I like to live because, you know, like, every year for my birthday, we have what we like to refer to as the Dirtbag Tour of America. And it's just like, all right, what are we doing this year? Like, New York State Fair. Let's go look at some cows. Let's go to the <laughs> Speedway. Like, went, you know, went to Merrimack, New Hampshire for the Budweiser Oktoberfest. Uh, <laughs> and it's like that. I'm not really looking for hospitality there because it's like, no, we're going to go have like a Stein holding contest and drink <laughs> a million beers. Um, but then it's a combination of if you're actually out here. Um, it doesn't matter the price point. You're looking for a quality human being that runs a quality establishment. Mm -hmm. um, and that doesn't matter if it, you know, you hope that at a very expensive price point you're going to be catered to in a particular way and your sheets are going to be very, very soft. <laughs> but it's not a requirement. Um, I did a weird kind of like spontaneous trip with my sister years ago to Mali um, in West Africa. And we basically drove across the country and hiked a bunch and we stayed in this weird kind of it's called like a refuge max refuge in like outside mopti shout out to mopti <laughs> and it was a bunch of people s sitting around eating and like you stayed underneath a, a bed net and it wasn't five star it wasn't you know certain it wasn't luxurious in any way but it was incredible and I will never forget it because it was a bunch of people just sitting around being like we're in the middle of nowhere like let's hang out and talk to one another um, <laughs> and it was inherently hospitable because we were being welcomed into this family's home essentially as strangers and it was truly exceptional so you know there's there's something about staying at a really nice hotel for a night where you're like this is super nice <laughs> my you know pillows are very fluffy but at the end of the day it, it 
it's it's a feeling you get from somebody and it can be in a really nice restaurant but it can also be like in a shack in the middle of nowhere where somebody's like check out this barbecue and it is the tastiest thing ever <laughs> because someone cared about it and right. you taste that like that's what true hospitality is it's like somebody loved it and all they want to do is share that love with you and you're like all right this is amazing like keep going yeah yeah, yeah i think i look more for an excitement especially when i'm eating out overseas I, i'm looking more for an excitement about the food than i am for sort of a traditional sense of you know restaurant hospitality you know is somebody excited about what they're making are they eager to talk about it even if we're kind of communicating in broken forms of each other's languages or just that they're pointing at you know as they're um i mean i think dining in bangkok is one of the most exciting places to dine because so much of the food is cooked on the street so you get to see how it's made and even if you can't really speak thai or the person who's cooking for you can't really speak english they're still you know they're still eager. Like I experienced a number of people who were very eager to to show me how they were making what they were making, and that was more important to me than I mean, far more important to me than a sort of traditional sense of hospitality that I might look for in a restaurant in my hometown. So Anna, I actually have a very specific question for you. <laughs> Talk to me. Um, that um, at sort of at one point you were working at Dominique Ansel Bakery mm-hmm. and you um in the kitchen with him sure. created the cronut. <laughs> you were there for the moment. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I've never queued for a cronut <laughs> and I've eaten many. <laughs> it's the, the perks. The, yeah. the, the perks of having an inside jab. It really was. <laughs> um but you know it's this phenomenon that is now like spread across the world and I feel like it was and maybe I could be totally wrong because I've only been in New York for three years so totally correct me if I'm wrong but I feel <laughs> like it was the beginning of like standing in line for a tiny thing which like a lot of New York is now like standing in line for a tiny thing like standing in line for a cronut which was delicious which I have done <laughs> um, standing in line for like a tiny thing of um, cookie dough standing in line for a rainbow bagel like those are all I feel like those are recent People love the queue. Yeah, they really yeah. do. Well, it's like <laughs> besides an iPhone. <laughs> the first food. So- I mean, there I used go. to always equate it to a roller coaster mm-hmm. because you're like, all right, you got two hours of waiting followed by 30 seconds of joy and then it's over and you can't get it back. <laughs> it's That's it. Like you've been to Six Flags. All right. Stand on the street. Um, and I mean, that was a weird. Obviously, that was a, a bomb that no one saw coming because. I remember the first article that it was mentioned the day before we launched it. It was like a new Venoiserie item and no one like particularly cared. And the head of Grub Street called Dominique and was like, how many are you planning on uh, making? He's like, I don't know, 15? He's like, you're going to want to make more. <laughs> and literally just like sent a screenshot of the traffic on the site. It was like, normal, normal, normal. What is this? Like, and it had super spiked. And people started showing up and it was a... It was a phenomenon before it was even a thing. And it was like, first it became what I would refer to as like a psychological litmus test because somebody would walk in. And before there were like rules and regulations, like you can only have two and this is what you can line up now and pre-order and blah, blah, blah. Like there was no system. And literally like 
day one, a guy walked in and was like, how many you got? <laughs> right, like, they were sold on the black like 30, market. Like right? 33? And he's like, I'll take them all. And people in the library were like, anarchy, just like, like <laughs> shouting at this guy. And he's like, uh. And like they're all just staring at everybody. And it was like, we sold out in 20 minutes the first day. And after that, yeah, there were homeless dudes who would wait in line and then try to sell them to people. And then we had to call the cops because then they were like out here just shouting at Dominique every morning and like calling him horrible names. And I'm like, we're just trying to make Bay Street. Why are you doing this? Like, And it was, you know, almost immediately it was people in Australia and people in England, people all over the world. And because I have friends who have gone places or lived different places, I always get like, you know, weird mentions where it was like, yo, check this out, you're in Hong Kong. And it would be fake cronuts all over the world so immediately. Yeah, they proliferated really quickly. Yeah. And it was I remember seeing that online. Yeah. It was that that I feel like it was one of the first real like social media food stuffs that just like went viral. And you're like I think that it started that? the idea of viral foods food, started yeah. with the cronut. And little does everybody know, it was just like a straight troll where you're just like, I mean, even the name Cronut is a troll because we were like sitting in a manager meeting. It was like, okay, what are we doing with these Cronuts? And like, what do you mean? I was like, it's croissant donut. What else are we going to call it? A Cronut, duh. Like, it's a troll. Like, people don't understand. But it was like, yeah, there's nothing else to call it. Now people are out here be like, dosants are better. And I'm like, all right, Dosan. guys. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The chicanery of, of the neologisms. <laughs> really out here with my SAT. Yeah, really. It's very impressive. I think I've been reading too much New York Times. And someone was having fun last night when I was reading about the Alabama election. And the amount of alliteration mm-hmm. in that one article, I was like, someone is really having a goof here. I'm into it. And so... Um, Ivy, I think, you know, the same can kind of be said for cocktails. And, you know, the, this, as an example, isn't a cocktail, but the pickleback sure. is now everywhere. Like, mm-hmm. I was in Istanbul a few months ago and went into a bar and there was a pickleback. In Istanbul? Really? In Istanbul. Wow. What was it called? A pickleback. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's kind of one of those things. It's kind of one of those things. But it's I like mean, chapstick. was it translated? <laughs> no, it was just pickleback. Okay. And we, obviously, we ordered them. Uh, for any listeners that don't know what a pickleback is, it's a shot of whiskey chased by pickle juice. And some people love it. Some people hate it. Um, <laughs> but I think it's really interesting that those sort of little cultural moments, um, like the cronut or the pickleback, can, right. can spread um, rapidly across like countries and, and the world. And... Um, I feel like the bartending community is like super tight knit and there's this network that's like totally global that, you know, as you said, you you go to Chicago or you go to Oaxaca or something and you're like, okay, who can I call to like get me a spot at this bar? Um, Could you like talk a little bit about that and what that network is like? And yeah, I mean, it's the, I mean, it's a fantastic little community and I'm very happy to be in it, but um it's very closed. It's very incestuous. It's very, um, I mean, tight is like an understatement, you know? Um, when I was first getting into it, into the cocktail scene, it was all just kind of open and easy and like people were just starting to get into it. So everyone's like, oh wait, you like making things with fresh juice? Oh my God, me too. Let's like 
who likes vodka sodas? Not me. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know it, it was a it was a whole thing, and now it's a little bit more elitist and kind of me me me. I'm better than you are. But um, but I do think that the benefits are that there are people all over, all over the world, and the community itself is super growing and learning from itself. A lot of that has to do with social media. Um, I think you know a lot when I have friends who are cooks or who are in the hospitality industry, whether they're a server or a bartender or, you know, a dishwasher or whatever, there's a people, you know, we're not, we're like subculture individuals. We're not like, we're not into the nine to five. That's why we're not in it. You know, we're, we want to do something a little bit different with that comes a bit of like a party culture. Like, Hey, you just got done work. I work six days a week. I just want to go have a drink and da da da. Um, Sometimes in the bartending industry, that can be a little bit blown out of proportion, I think. But when it's fun, it's very fun. <laughs> and, and it is fun to go to different places. Like when I was in Greece, um, bartending with the Clumsies, we went out to all these different places. And I was like, oh, cool. Hey, you're a bartender. I'm a bartender. We are in- immediately friends. Like this is it. Yeah. We're friends for life because we both know what it's like to like be in the trenches. And, oh, what kind of bar do you want to go to? Cocktail bar, wine bar, you know, shithole. Let's go, you know, and it just is extremely fun to have that broadcast um, net. Um, <laughs> but I do think I I really like it when I get to, to have other people infiltrate that. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I have like I have friends within it who are my best friends, but also meeting their friends from like high school who's like a math teacher. And I'm like, oh, cool, you're a math teacher. <laughs> but one way to but one way about this industry is that we do meet so many more people my boyfriend's always like your net is very very wide <laughs> <I'm just> like, <laughs> yeah. like where do you want to go i bet you i can find somebody you know that's just the way it is but it's yeah it's awesome it's great and so um just on the point of it being um it being like super tight knit and kind yeah. of having moments of sort of elitism and being kind of clubby like is that one of the reasons why you decided to start speed rack yeah so kind of um but also speed rack kind of played on that kind of tight-knitness as well. So Speed Rack was originally started because, um, so you already said it was, but it's an all-female breast cancer charity, all-female bartending competition and breast cancer charity that we started in 2011. And we started it because we wanted women to stand on these, like, hey, why do you go into all the best bars in the world and there are no women? What's up with that? And I put best bars in quotation marks, right? This is like or you'd get the most delicious cold martini or martini variation (laughs) 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 or something. But like, where are all the the chicks at? So we started Speed Rack to basically create a platform for women to stand on and be like, I'm just here hiding behind that guy with the mustache. You know, (laughs) I can also make a cocktail. (laughs) Um, And with, it was, uh, when we first started, everyone was super stoked on it. You know, no, I don't think that people were necessarily being in their heads like, we cannot have women behind here. No women. No, no, no. That'd be so bad. I just think that there was an image that we didn't fit into. Um, but for the most part, that tight knit gr- community is what made speed rack what it is. Mm-hmm. When we first started out, it was like only industry people who came to the events. And there'd be like 150 people there, 100, maybe 250 on a good one. And it'd just be like everyone you knew from all the bars you liked and maybe some regulars who were super geeks in the cocktails. And now it's like, 60% trade, 40% consumer. And that's great, but we wouldn't have been able to get to where we are today without the help of our community who like come and they volunteer at each event. And, you know, like we were just in Chicago on Sunday. Shout out, another shout out to Chicago. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, 
we raised, I think, almost twenty thousand dollars in three and a half hours. Wow! Yeah, and six hundred people. And six hundred people came. It was great, but we wouldn't. We'd never. It's not six hundred people in the industry. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah, like yeah. it's like a whole. It's not. It's. But then again, we're also in a place now where people spend lots of money buying pastry and cocktail books and like. Yeah. you know follow people like us on instagram and twitter because they're like oh my god interesting you know <laughs> so it's, like a, it's, it's a whole new world a whole new frontier yeah. than it was yeah, at this point the idea of spending 18 you know 18 20 on a cocktail and seven dollars on an eclair right it's like an acceptable thing just look at like the price <laughs> of macaron like if somehow i could have like gone back Family Matters style and told myself like invest in macaron like, <laughs> yeah like buy stock like in or, like, yeah. everything was like before it was okay here's a cookie and now it's like three dollars like what yeah it feels oh like gosh. it's a double edged sword the sort of the I don't even know what word to use to describe it but the I guess sort of elevation of everything in the food space I think in some ways has been amazing and I'm certainly incredibly grateful. I live around the corner from Ivy's Bar and love drinking there. Um, and I've also had Anna's desserts and they're amazing. Um, but I think we have also reached a point in our culture where there's almost like a fetishization around totally. yeah. uh, certain foods and the way certain foods are prepared and, you know, unnecessary combinations for the sake of having an unnecessary combination mm-hmm. or or the use of a technique just for the sake of using a technique that might produce something that would look cool on Instagram. Um, and I do worry a little bit that we're, you know, as a society sort of, are, are we moving towards a point where we've lost touch with the fact that also food is food and drink are about physically feeding people um, at the core of it. Uh, so... It's really interesting to see how we've gone to that point of, yeah, a $7 eclair or a $20 cocktail. And some of the time, I think that is a thousand percent warranted. Like, if you go and you have a $20 cocktail at the office, Grant Ackett's um, cocktail bar, that is worth $20. Um, but there's also, I think, places where we've gotten, you know, we've gotten away from certain ideas of what food and drink are. Yeah. I and, mean, yeah, so. I just have to say, it's the idea that every plate that you look at, it's like, if you troll through your Instagram, okay, look at the plate. Take off every microgreen and flour. What What is what actually is on the table? Yeah. What is on the plate? Yeah. And people, it's like, sometimes you're like, that. that's not really a thing. <laughs> you just put, like, a bunch of sauce on the plate, and then you've covered it with flour. It's like, yes. Are there very, very specific places that could be like, oh, okay, I understand the way that like this nasturtium flower really affects right. the overall taste of something. Yes. Other people are just out here because they're like, uh. This point lipstick on the <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. And it really, really, really annoys me that then you try to upcharge people because they're like, oh my God, this is like so beautiful. Yeah. You're like, yeah, but you're not eating anything. None of that tastes good. Like, I'm sorry, but violas are not what I'm trying to crush on dessert. Like, do, you, do you think that the way you can tell the difference between the place that like actually is doing it because they are like very careful and considerate and like excited like you were saying about it and the people who are just like ooh I'm going to just do this because everyone else is doing it and I'm going to make a bunch of money off of it like how do you tell the difference between those places is it just a feeling is it the vibe like what it's like the million dollar question. I know. Yeah, it's <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's also the idea that, I mean, it's not just 
flowers in my grow mm-hmm. feeds. It's right. also, you know, the level of spice on anything. Mm-hmm. Are you putting something spicy on that just to be like, it's the hottest thing ever <laughs> that you can't actually taste versus like, what do these different chilies do and what flavors do they create and mm-hmm. how can you create an actual flavorful dish that it doesn't just burn your mouth out? Like, are you putting it just for the sake of being like, it's really spicy or are you putting it with intent and purpose? Mm-hmm. And I think you have to like, obviously it comes from a point of education about being like, okay, I'm not just going to put, you know, look back at, I've been re rewatching weird episodes of Top Chef from seasons one, two, and three. And it's like, everybody's out here like, <laughs> just for man, fun. Yeah, for funsies. <laughs> like, but the idea that every pastry challenge, it's always just like, and then I put like a whole strawberry with a stem attached and or a mint sprig and like a doodle of whipped cream. <laughs> like that was how pastries look for so many years. And it was like, I don't want that mint sprig. Nobody wants that mint sprig. Nobody's eating it. Why are you putting it there? Like they had a fruit plate challenge and everybody just cut off the top of the pineapple and put it on the top of the plate. And they're like, why Why did you put this pineapple top? I don't want to eat that. <laughs> that you can't eat it. Like, exactly. Yeah, well, yeah. it's like inedible garnish. So the idea that it's the same, people have been doing the same things forever, but it's now just like the inedible superfluous gar- garnish is now just like prettier. So the idea that it's it's the same stuff that people have been doing, you just got to like get rid of all the noise and be like, all right, what does this, what is the content of this? Like, is this quality product? Do you know? And you can read it on a menu. Some people are going to put where something came from or what ingredients they use. And it's a trigger to be like, oh, this person mm-hmm. gave enough of a shit to be like, no, this is really dope. And I want you to know that I know where this comes from because somebody cared about it along the way. And now I'm going to try to respect that. So... I think, Ivy, the way that you phrase it, the million-dollar question, it kind of is. It's really it's really hard to put your finger on, and I think it's particularly hard to put your finger on before you dine somewhere. Um, or, you know, I think that we can talk about criticism, and I think restaurant criticism is pretty important if it's done well. Um, but I think often it requires you personally or, or somebody who's a friend of yours who you trust, you know, actually go to the restaurant don't take out your phone. Don't take a picture of it and just eat the way that you would have eaten a meal, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. Does it taste good? I mean, that's um, or does it feel like it was was there a level of showmanship for the sake of showmanship or or did it really add something uh, to the experience? But it's such a thing now at this point, like as someone who like I own my bar and we're doing this thing right now called Slayenda. It's a is not a Beyonce pop up. We got <laughs> <laughs> we got a cease and desist from Beyonce. Not a, not yeah. Mm-hmm. Did yeah. you That's frame you it? Doing it's framed. It is framed. <laughs> it is framed. So, but we're, it's our Christmas pop up at Leyenda, and we're making all these drinks. <laughs> yeah, I know it's great. It's great. I love it. We've got a Beyonce Christmas tree topper. <laughs> it's amazing, but um, not a Beyonce pop up. If you're listening, day. Um, but um, we hope you are. My queen, my queen, <laughs> yeah, my queen. Bad um, But um, we, when we were doing this menu, we're like, okay, what we're we gonna do for this menu? And literally every single drink on our special special menu is Instagrammable. That was like the thing because you know that that's gonna bring people in, right? So the, then the question is, how do you make these things? So like when I see someone taking a picture of their drink with their cell phone, I'm like, good. You know, but the other part of me is like, you know, that thing where I'm carrying some drinks across the thing. Like we put this one drink on the menu 
our first winter that we called the Headless Horseman, which is essentially a basic bitch pumpkin spice latte that's frozen with cachaça. And we're like, who's going to drink a frozen drink in the wintertime? We're like, oh, I know. Put some pumpkin and some spice in it and light that shit on fire. It's going to sell like hotcakes. (laughs) (laughs) And sure enough, it does. Like, it goes across the room. People have no idea what it is. And they're like, what's that? You know, you're like, oh, it's a pumpkin frozen drink. And people are like, yeah, two for me. You know, they have no idea. What is that, $50? Okay, I I was going to play 60, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So I think it is a double-edged sword, right? And it is a type of thing where you do have to go and try it. Um, I think that our drinks for Slanda are super delicious. Do I think that people are coming in there because they saw a picture of it somewhere? Yes. Sure. That's absolutely why they're coming in. Um, And that's great. Come in because you'll hopefully be pleasantly surprised with the drinks themselves because they are excellent. But um, they're also kitschy and kind of ridiculous, you know, so I think it's... You can't be a business person in 2017 and not understand that, like, people are going to take pictures of your food. Yeah. Right. And... It can't look busted. Like that's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we had a, we had like a, somebody in the head office team chose a like Instagram photo winner for November, and it was the worst photo in the world. And I was like, first of all, why did you choose this? But second of all, like. Oh God, because the ice cream was melting. Like clearly, they just were like sitting on the table for a few minutes and like deceased a little bit. But it was very it was very tough. Because sometimes I'll like look on what people geotag for the restaurants and be like, okay, I had a day off. I want to see what people were sending out, and I want to make sure it's like a it's a level of quality control for me that I'm able to be like, okay, let's see what let's see what the plates look like when they hit the dining room. And nine times out of ten, they're nice. But sometimes you're like, I need to address this with someone because it looks beat up. So I do use it as a tool sometimes, which is helpful. But mm-hmm. I use it as a research tool all the time. Yeah. It's really helpful. I mean, I know I was sort of hating on Instagram before. <laughs> Maybe I wonder if one of the ways to phrase it would be that the drink or the food would have been just as good if you hadn't been able to post on Instagram. Mm. Yeah. Um that, you know, it, I don't know. Maybe that's a way to think about it. Yeah. yeah. So I'm gonna pivot <laughs> to something slightly I think that yeah serious. I think that what <laughs> dun, 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 you know exactly. <laughs> um, you know when we started this podcast we were like you know what we're gonna really like hype not hype up but just like really showcase like all of the amazing things that you know women are doing um, and I think that part of that over these last couple of weeks has been realizing that there are all these amazing women whose like careers have been either put on hold or have been hurt um, by men um because of sexual harassment or sexual assault, um, the biggest names being Mario Batali and Ken Friedman. And I think that Lali and I, I think, would just like to know not necessarily like what you think about the accusations, but what you think the general feeling is in your communities and what you as women in the industry feel like n- needs to be done to kind of address it. Sure. Well, this... In the beverage industry, we kind of started going through this, like, like I mean, always. Let's not be stupid. Always. Right. It's not a new thing. But employees only came out with an advertisement being like, we're looking for cocktail waitresses. FYI, they don't hire men. They do now, which is great, but they didn't then. And it was a co- woman going like this with a cocktail tray with basically two martini glasses, like, aptly placed, you know. And, and people were just like... This is some bullshit. Why don't you guys hire some women to bartend? You know, when I talk to dudes now who are like 
the whole me too thing and they're like that's just really and i'm like if you you just haven't been looking or you might be one of these people you just didn't know it you know or Um, they haven't been listening like we've also i think women have been talking about this for a long time and i think men just haven't been listening well clearly women haven't been listening either i mean you hear that april bloomfield was like that's what like why she was just like um yeah you know sorry this is the way it is and like that's what that was in the times article yesterday so i think that we are certainly not not to blame like there's a whole community of just like i just can't deal with this because it could cost me my job it could cost me whatever um but yeah it's certainly an interesting interesting time um and I'm very intrigued to see what will happen, how it's going to shake out, and if this will actually end up helping people's careers, which I'm also not so sure about. You know, like if that's using this as like a tool to aid your career, I think it's like, oh, it's all just incredibly icky and it's untread territory. And yeah. I guess I worry have we moved past that in the majority of restaurants in the US? I think some of the time the New York food world is very insular, and I know I can very much be a part of that. And I, you know, has the experience for somebody who's working, you know, in a neighborhood restaurant in Des Moines, has has their experience changed? It's going to have to now. I mean, yeah. right now, I think no one's no one's blind to what's happening right now. Yeah. I don't think that if it was happening then, it's certainly not happening to it today. I doubt very much something's yeah. happening today. And if it is, I, I sincerely hope that's the case. Yeah. yeah, I mean, or if it is happening and it it is there's such a fear involved in whoever the victim is that they can't go out and say something. Um, but you would have to have a serious set of balls on you to do something right now. Cause you're going to, there it is like shit is coming down right now. What I think really needs to be addressed is one, the idea that a workplace does not only exist as where you work and particularly in an industry where people, you know, we talk about like an incestuous group of uh, people the idea that people go out, you know, these are high stress jobs. These are long hour jobs that you go out and you're like, all right, it's the end of the day. Like, let's go get a beer. The idea that that the workplace doesn't end when you clock out. Right, right. And I think people yeah. need to address that in a, in a very significant way. It's like, no, just because you tried to kiss me at the bar doesn't mean that my workplace is not affected by that. Um, and then it's also just like the everyday, like, you know, misogyny light, which is locker you know, room talk. You mean? <laughs> well, yeah. well, I, but I mean the idea that if you said I'm gonna grab her by the pussy, right? Like you would be fired. But the idea that the amount of people, not you know, both in a cook or a sous chef, refer to somebody like, oh, what are you on your period? Or like, you know, it's like, and it's like, and then they just see my face appear around a corner, and I'm like, <laughs> what's wrong with having a period? And people are like, uh, I don't, and it's like that pisses me off so much. It's yeah. like, yes, is it totally different than sexual assault? Certainly, but the idea that you are still demeaning to a man using someone's femininity or like womanhood as your mode to discredit a man, like, oh, you're doing that like a girl, and it's like. Doing it very well. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah. When we, I did a seminar, um, there's a really great group. It's called Poor, P, and then Our in parentheses, um, that was started in England. And then they do symposiums and they did one in Paris. um, And Lynette Marrero, my business partner in Speedrack, and I did one. And it was called Embracing the F Word. And it was all about that conversation. Like, in no other industry, like, 
if you were a cop and you were arresting someone, I wouldn't be like, man, you arrested that guy like a total bitch. You know, you know, like, what, what a girly way to put on handcuffs, you know, but in, like in my industry, people are like, eh, you know, how's that drink? I don't know, is it girly? Is it kind of girly glass? Does it, you know, am I going to grow boobs just from drinking it? You know, I'm just like, oh, Jesus, Jesus H. Like, this is crazy. And there is such a way that is inherently in our industry that just the pronouns we put on things that are feminine are inherently negative. And we have to change that yeah. whole way of yeah. thinking well, about what we're doing. Yeah, my... My husband's favorite drink is a daiquiri, and he gets a lot of shit for ordering daiquiris in like nice bars, and and they're like a bit of a girly drink, and he's like, no, it's an excellent classic cocktail. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I, I mean, if any, yeah, I mean, if people say that, it drives me absolutely insane. And there is something to be said for embracing the femininity and inva- embracing, or. I, I, even using those words now are so weird, but like inherently feminine characteristics versus inherently male characteristics. There are reasons why we want to have a mixed group of people in our yeah. establishments, you know? I mean, I'm, I think that I'm really lucky that I am business partners with, all, I have four business partners, five? Four. Four <laughs> business partners. Sorry, I'm the fifth. I'm number five. <laughs> I, but um, three of them are women. Uh, two of them are married, and then the other one's Tom, and he might as well be a woman because he <laughs> he has a wife and three daughters also. So, but it is like we have a very interesting working space, like having all of these women around. My chef Jorge always calls us the jefas. He's like, "Where are the jefas at?" And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> "Right over here, man." You know, and it is. I think that hopefully we will see more women in places of power who got there not because they're such a bitch they made it through. You know, yeah. like, yeah, that's, that's the whole a narrative thing. that I think is told over and over yeah. um, that the women who made it through and who made it to the top did so because, you know, yes, exactly for that reason and not necessarily because it feels like you can't. There was a narrative for a long time that as a woman, you couldn't make it to the top if you were also, you know, a person who treated their staff with dignity and who. You know, it was sort of, it was only women who would have, like, put somebody through a wall were going to make it to the top. And on that note of boss ladies, do you guys want to go around and shout out someone that you think in food or drink is doing something really incredible? Another woman? There are so, so many. Uh, I'm going to shout out to Melissa Rodriguez, the executive chef at Del Posto, because... She don't take no shit from nobody. (laughs) And I think a big thing, I mean, she's an extremely, extremely talented chef, but she is also out here because she's like, let, I want to talk about food. Every time she's, you know, she's at the helm of the, you know, four-star New York Times restaurant, and she's the only woman at that position at this point. And every conversation she has is about her gender. And (laughs) it's, you know, it's really, really fresh. She sits on you know, like Michelin star panels and it's talking about, you know, it's like with all of these industry heavyweights and everybody keeps asking her about like what it's like to be a woman in the kitchen. And she's like, yo, I'm doing the same job that all these bros are doing. Why don't you ask them what it's like to be a man in the kitchen? No, I am here for the food. And every time I see a quote from her, I really respect it because I'm like, yeah, that's how it should be. And hopefully, obviously, you know, we've talked a lot about it today, but I hope that in the future it can be a conversation about what it's like to be a person yeah. rather than like solely based upon your gender. Agreed. 
Um, let's see. I would have to say probably I've got two. Um, and her last name I always say wrong, but Ashley Obodili. She used to work at the Nomad Kitchen um, here in New York. Now she's in L.A. I actually met her. We got into a bike on bike uh, bike accident um, with each other. Yeah, that's oh. how we met, and we were in the we were on the ambulance going to the hospital, and she was like, <laughs> quite a quite a way to meet somebody. Yeah, and she was like, oh, I have to be in the floor tomorrow, and I was like, Are you some sort of caterer? Like, what do you do? And she's like, No, I work at I love in Madison Park, and I was like. I <laughs> <laughs> like have all the people to, she like bit through her lip blocks oh everywhere my, my, my hand was completely mangled and I was like you know Leah Robichek she was like yeah and I'm like yeah he's like my best friend god damn it <laughs> <laughs> anyway but she's great and the way she's made her career is so fantastic and someone who is just a hard worker doesn't necessarily isn't in the limelight that much like not that people many people know who she is but Nomad's opening up there shortly and it's gonna be her her shit. So I think that's great. And then there's Alba Huerta who lives in Houston, Texas. She is just, she's just been doing it for a long time. She's a Mexican, Mexican American woman. She has had her ups and her downs and all the way around in the business and in the world. Um, and she's someone who I respect a lot because she is just a very feminine woman. She's like a curvy vivacious latina chick who like her superpower is being a woman and like a beautiful woman and i think it's awesome that she's able to embrace that and like i feel like sometimes women have a tendency to try to hide that in in our industries like no i'm manly i can like chug a million beers and i love doing picklebacks you know (laughs) (laughs) but i think i really respect her for being able to like embrace that and use it for the benefit that it is uh, so I want to give a shout out to two people, the first of whom was Anna's early boss, uh, Ellen Yin, who has owned <laughs> a number of really extraordinary restaurants in Philadelphia for ages. Fork just hit 20 years. Um, the Philadelphia restaurant scene has a number of pretty big players. Almost all of those players are men, with the exception of Ellen, um, and I think that she deserves a lot of credit for pushing the Philadelphia dining scene forward. Um, So that's one person. The other person is my former boss, Amanda Clute, who is the editor-in-chief of Eater, who has pretty continuously pushed to make sure that the publication is covering women, it's covering people of color, it's covering people who don't don't identify with the gender. Um, And that's a really important part of the food narrative and we need more people who are women who are at the top of mastheads who are pushing to make sure that those stories are being told on that note of women helping women where could the women who listen to this podcast find you on the internet to follow you uh instagram is probably the best way to follow me it's at d first f-e-r-s-t how about you ivy i'm at ivy mix on everything and anna Bananarama, B-A-N-N-A-R-A-M-A. Spelled weird. (laughs) (laughs) Try to keep it on the sneak. (laughs) It's definitely the best handle I've heard in a while. I love it. Well, I'm at Oh Hey There Mare, and where can people find you, Lale? Uh, You can find me at Lale Hannah on Instagram. 
And thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you all for joining us. You can find Women Who Travel on iTunes and SoundCloud. You can find Connie Nass Traveler at CN Traveler on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. And Connie Nass Traveler on Facebook and YouTube. You should also check out our other podcast, Travelog, which comes out on Fridays. And we hope you have a great week. Thank you so much. Bye.